Thank you, uh, Mitch. Great to uh, be here with you. Uh, it's always good to come to Tampa, as Mitch said, especially in December when it's a little colder in Michigan uh, than it is right now. But we still have that snow, which is pretty amazing. It's been very mild, so it's actually been really good to live up north and avoid all of the heat. Uh, it's always good to, to be here, and especially with Advent, because I love the Advent series. I love the fact that uh, this is a time where we get to journey towards something. And last week, Mitch uh, set it off by talking about the importance of vulnerability. And I think when you're waiting for something, being vulnerable and recognizing that you can't do what you need to do on your own is a critical part of giving God the space to break in. And I think the second part of that is actually to be courageous while you wait. And so I want to talk about courage today, and I want to talk about the basis for courage, because I think it's right there in the Advent story. Mitch went to the beginning of the Old Testament last week. I'm going to go to the beginning of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. But in the passage I'm going to look at is from verse 18, the story of Joseph. Uh, what we get to discover is the gift of Christmas is actually the gift of God with us. That's the, the definition that the angel gave to Joseph as Joseph was considering what to do with the news that Mary has shared with him. Joseph was told, listen, God is with us. God will be with us. Now in Scripture, one of the foundational proofs that God was with a person is that they had the courage to do something that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. I don't think it's a coincidence then that the angel comes to Joseph and says, listen, I want you to take Mary as your wife because... God is with you. I want you to be courageous. When you look at the scripture, even through the Old Testament, right, over and over again, God comes to his people and said, look, you're waiting for something, but the way you achieve it is actually by being strong and courageous. What I want you to do is to, to do something. Oh, and by the way, I'm with you. Over and over again, we see courage being possible because somebody embraces the reality that God is with them. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word for courage is hazak. It basically means to show oneself to be strong. That's the, that's the root cause of it, the root meaning of it. Now, according to a scholar by the name of Grants, courage is simply the ability to act according to reason in the face of fear. So courage is showing oneself to be strong, and the definition of it is the ability to act with reason in the face of fear. So the first question is, whose reasoning are we to act on? Well, from the scriptures, it's obviously God's reasoning. God comes to us and says, look, I know you're facing a challenging situation, but I want you to act with reason. <laughs> now, for many people, it's unreasonable to believe in God. But God says, look, if you want to see what I have for you, you need to act according to my reason, even in the face of fear. So whose reason? God's reason. In the face of fear. fear what fear there? Well, for an unbeliever, the fear of God is ultimately a fear of judgment. It's the reality that at the end of time we're all going to stand before our Creator and we're all going to be called to give an account to what we've done with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a fear of judgment. 
But the believer doesn't have to fear judgment. Why? Because the judgment for our sin was actually placed on Christ. So we don't live in fear of judgment. So what do we live in fear of? We actually live in fear of God. Now this fear of God isn't some kind of anxious kind of thing because God is an old guy, right, with a big white beard. Not like Father Christmas because he brings us gifts, but God actually has a stick. And he kind of beats us. That, that, that's the way that we often think when we hear this word fear. But that's not what fear is. The fear of God is actually to live with the reality that this all-consuming, almighty, holy God is with us. This morning, as Mitch was kind of leading uh, the, the volunteers and the staff in prayer and devotions, reflecting on the day, he went to Romans 15. And in Romans 15, he read a passage, and in there, there is a, there is a citation from the, the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 11 is the citation that he uses. And Isaiah 11 is one of those scriptures that often comes up in Advent. You've got Isaiah 9, right? And then we go Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, and Isaiah 11 11 is another one that we go to. In Isaiah 11, it actually talks about the one we are waiting for being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit there is described as resting on him. And this spirit that rests on him is actually called the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The one we await is able to do what he does because he lives in fear of God. Do you think Jesus was afraid of the Father? No. That's not what it means. What it means to live in the fear of God is to be aware that every step we take is taken in the presence of an almighty God. And that's why Jesus said, listen, I strive to do nothing other than what the Father tells me to do and what the Father tells me to say. Why? Because he lived in the fear of God. Courage is the ability to act according to God's reason in the face of a challenge. It's something we do because we know God is with us. One of the most courageous people in the Advent story is Joseph. But he's usually the one that's overlooked. And so I want to look at this story that we're familiar with, where the angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, this is what I want you to do. And I want us to view it within the lenses of courage. And I want us to do that because I believe that the evangelical church in in America right now is at a crossroads. We've come to a point where we need to ask ourselves, what are we going to invest our time and energy in? Preserving a culture that is ultimately Christian but unbiblical, or preserving a culture that is actually faithful and obedient to the scriptures because God is with us. And and I think when we look at the lesson of Joseph, we actually learn what it's like for you and I to be courageous at such a time as this. So if you have the Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, and I want to read from verse 18 through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, that basically means engaged. They would be engaged for about a 12-month period. In that period, they wouldn't spend much alone time uh, together, and much time together. They would always be together in the company of friends. It was about proving their, their faithfulness. So before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. 
Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take uh, to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took, him, uh, took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Simple story. We, we know this story. We're familiar with this story. But in this story, I see Joseph acting in incredibly courageous ways. I want to share two of those ways with you. The first one is, I think that Joseph is courageous because Joseph has the courage to consider. Joseph has the courage to consider. What do I mean by that? Have a look at verse 19 and verse 20. This is what we read here. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, but while he thought about these things. We're told here that Joseph deliberated about what to do. Now, it was in this deliberation phase, putting the story of Matthew and Luke together, that Mary left and went to Elizabeth. She's leaving because Joseph doesn't know what he's going to do. And so in this deliberation phase, Mary leaves, Joseph is on his own. She did that because it would quickly become known that she was pregnant. Now, I want you to know what verse 19 tells us about Joseph. It tells us two things. It tells us, firstly, that he was a just man. That means he was a man who lived well. Driving Joseph's deliberations about what to do was his character. See, who you are drives what you do. And we're told two things. He was just, but we're also told that he was merciful. He was just and merciful. Driving his decision was justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. What does it mean to live as a just man? It doesn't simply mean that you live morally upright. To live as a just man, according to the Old Testament, means that you seek to do all that the law describes and you seek to follow it as fully and as intentionally as you can. So although his heart was breaking over what he heard, he, we're told that he concluded that quietly terminating his relationship with Mary, sparing her public embarrassment, was the best thing that he could do. Now here's what that would involve in the context. In the context, that would mean that Joseph would take a number of witnesses, tell them the story, they would essentially sign the papers... And so how quiet is that going to be? Nazareth is also a small town. It's about 500 to 1,000 inhabitants, we think, at that point in time. 
So the bottom line is for Joseph and for Mary, it wasn't going to be possible to live as quietly and keep this as quiet as they like to think. There is a mathematic formula for gossip, and it's the cube of the number of people who know. Right? So if you're ever going to share something quiet with four people, there's a 64% chance it's actually going to get out. So with our staff over and over again, I say, I want us to break math. You can't break math, right? But I want us to. So in this context, Joseph realizes he's going to do this secretly, but he doesn't know how quiet this is going to be kept. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody else's business. Mary does the only thing she knows to do. She goes to visit Elizabeth. And you know how that story goes. But we're told he's a just man. So as I read this story, I'm thinking, okay, what is Joseph thinking as Mary has told him what has happened? Have you ever thought that question? What what does Joseph think? I I mean, they probably meet that public setting, right? They weren't allowed to do it on their own. And and Mary kind of stands by the side of him and just says, hey, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Joseph looks at what? Yeah, you're not going to believe this, but... I haven't been with another man. It's actually a baby that is being implanted in me through the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought what Joseph thought about that? Because that's what he's thinking about. And I'm like, okay, how am I to interpret this response of Joseph? He wants to put her to one side quietly. What does that action tell me about what's going through his head? Right? Because he's processing this. He's thinking about this. What's, What's going through his head? And then I go to the fact that actually the Bible doesn't tell us, right? It's totally quiet about what he thought. And I thought, okay, how do I, how do I wrestle with this then? How do we know what's going through his head? Well, we go back to what we are told about him. What are we told? We're told that he's just. We're told that he's merciful. Justice and mercy. If what Joseph does, and is seeking to do, putting Mary to one side quietly, divorcing her quietly, is the just and merciful thing to do, what does that tell us about his mindset? I don't know about you, but when I've thought about this, I thought, well, there's no way that Joseph would have believed what Mary said. So he's putting her to one side for two reasons, right? Based on Deuteronomy chapter 22. This is my thinking. Uh, My first thought was, okay, he actually thinks she has been with someone else, and that's, that's basically why she's pregnant. But if that were true, then what he does in putting her to one side quietly is merciful, but it's not just. Why is it not just? Justice isn't simply living an upright life. Justice is actually following the law. The law is really clear what happens in a situation like this. Deuteronomy chapter 22. In Deuteronomy 22, we read that in a situation like this, the person who finds this out is to bring this to public attention, and then the people responsible are to be disciplined publicly. If... Joseph ultimately puts her to one side quietly because he thinks that she's pregnant by someone else, then he's merciful, but he's not just because he's violating the law. He's allowing sin 
to be done without there being a consequence. Think about this. What do we, what do we love about the cross? Do we not love the message of the cross? Because at the cross, God's justice and God's mercy meet. God's justice recognizes that the sin that we have committed has to be punished. The penalty for our sin has to be paid. At the cross, Jesus satisfied God's wrath and God's justice in dying for us. But we also recognize that there at the cross, God's mercy is shown because through the cross there is forgiveness. You see, in the scriptures, justice and mercy always act together. So I'm reading this story and I'm like, wait a minute, doing the right thing? The wrong way actually doesn't satisfy justice. Let me give you an example of this. I've adopted uh, uh, two Haitian African-American children. Amazing story. When we lived in Tampa, they lived in the projects not too far from here. Sibling group of 11. All of these children have actually been adopted in Holland. And I say over and over again, if the only reason that God sent me to Michigan was so that these children who were going to be put into the foster care system likely would never see one another ever again, could be adopted in Holland, we can celebrate Christmases together, we can celebrate birthdays together. If that's the only reason God sent me to Holland, Michigan, then that's good enough. It's just been an amazing story. But the son I adopted is academically challenged. He was, uh, he was the one in the family who bore the brunt of the punishment. He was held by his feet outside the windows. He was whipped with belts. He was locked into dark closets over and over again. Severe emotional trauma. God has healed him of so much of that, but he's academically challenged. Now, we've placed him in a Christian school because we felt that that was the right environment for him. But there's a problem when you put a kid into a Christian school. It's called the Protestant work ethic. And if you are academically challenged and you can't hit grades and all of the other people are hitting good grades, it makes you feel worthless. So he works really, really hard to get a C. But it's not good enough for him because he's a perfectionist. And so one time he did a test, and the test wasn't that good. And so the, the teacher said to him, hey, uh, Jaden, you can actually take this test at home again. And he took the test at home again, and he got an A. You should have seen him. It was like walking around on air. Right? So I, I've got this. Well, anyway, it was the time for the next test. Guess what? He didn't turn it in, took it at home, and got an A. Wait a minute. Jay, that's not the way this works. You've tried to do the right thing, but you've actually cut a corner here. You've actually done it the wrong way, buddy. You need to recognize that, hey, the, the first effort needed to be handed in. Doing the right thing the wrong way is never right. If Joseph is just and merciful, doing the right thing, showing mercy, without actually having God's justice satisfied, is actually wrong. So I'm looking at this going, okay, I I, I don't know what's going through Joseph's mind, but if justice and mercy are going to be satisfied, it simply can't be that Joseph didn't believe Mary. That doesn't satisfy the scriptures when it comes to justice and mercy. It doesn't satisfy Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27 also emphasizes a second possibility here, that Joseph would have thought that Mary would have been violated by another man. That another man ultimately acted in a way that was completely inappropriate. 
Don't we know today that men in religious settings still act inappropriately? Let's not fool ourselves in thinking that that's not a possibility. Look at the news. There, there are stories about Christian agencies right now in the news where men abuse the authority that they have and women suffer. This is, this is, a, real, this is a real issue, always has been. So is that what's going through Joseph's mind? He knows Mary is an upright woman, but clearly somebody has done something wrong. Well, listen, if that is what he thinks, then firstly, he has actually not vocalized this. We don't know whether he has or not. But we do know from this that he decides, if this is what's going through his mind, to put Mary to one side quietly. Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27 is 100% clear that in a situation like this, a woman should not be punished by being put to the side. You understand what's going on here? Either way you look at this, justice and mercy actually forces us to think differently about what was going through Joseph's mind as he's actually interacting with what Mary told him. And the only logical scriptural conclusion that I can come up with is that when the angel told him, hey, this is what's going on. It reinforced a position that he already knew. See, he knew Mary was upright and just. He knew God could do this, but his problem was nowhere in all of the scriptures does it actually say what a man does when the Holy Spirit impregnates a woman. It, it talks about what happens when men and women do the wrong thing. At the wrong time. It talks about what happens when men behave badly. But it doesn't talk about what a man does. When he's supposed to be a stepfather to the Messiah. And and he's wrestling this through. And he's like wait a minute. That's just beyond me God. The easiest thing for me to do in a situation like this. Is just basically to sign the papers and get out of the way. Because clearly you're doing your thing. And I don't play a part in this thing. Can we just begin to comprehend this a second? Joseph hears something that completely shatters his worldview. And he considers it. One of the problems that we have in the evangelical church right now is what I call affirmation bias. One of the problems we have in our nation right now is affirmation bias. See, Joseph was thinking. When you look at this word thinking, it actually involves emotional struggle. This word thought, and we'll see on the screen here, this word thought means to ponder, to consider, or to meditate. It's a compound word, which basically means there's two words that have been put together. The first word, en, means in, and the second word, thumos, means mind and thought. But get this, it also means anger, wrath, indignation, and outbursts. He's thinking about this, but he is freaked out. This news shatters his worldview. Any of you ever been confronted with news that shatters your worldview? Well, if you've responded to Jesus, you have. But really, that encounter with Jesus should actually set the believer on a path to be truly considerate. To have the courage to consider all things. And yet, 
whether it comes to issues like racial injustice, whether it comes to issues like gun law, yeah, I'm going to go there, whether it comes to issues of sexuality, we don't consider a thing. In fact, many of us have got our pre, predetermined, our bookmarked, right, websites that we go to to get the information that we need to support the conclusion that we've already reached. What we've got in the evangelical church is affirmation bias, not an information bias. Friends, if we want the church of Jesus Christ in the emerging America that is changing, not all of that is good. But if we want the church of Jesus Christ to be on the forefront of proclaiming hope when there's hopelessness, healing when there's brokenness, light when there's darkness, it begins with you and I having the courage to truly consider what we think when someone presents a worldview to us that is completely alien to everything that we've grown up with. Joseph had the courage to consider. The question is, do we? I'm not saying that everything being put out there is right. What I'm saying is, as believers, we need to recognize that we have an example of a man here who was waiting for God to come and recognize that a key part of this was considering what his response needed to be. Are you willing to be considerate? Are you willing to be thoughtful even though that thought that you're being confronted with, that worldview that you're being confronted with, makes you angry. It stirs you on the inside. That's the way Joseph felt. I tell you what, Mitch, I don't know what it's like being in Florida, but in Michigan, a blue state, leading a red church, if you know what I'm saying. This COVID thing, good night. People make doctrinal statements out of whether to wear a mask. I I just don't get it. It's as if mask wearing is actually more important than what you believe about Jesus. And people would rather go to a church that actually waters down the truth of the gospel as long as they don't mask the image of God. I'm like, people, are you truly considering the scriptures here? Friends, Do you want God to come and to break in in your life in a real way? If you do, then there may well be the case that at some point in time, God is going to come to you like he does with Joseph. And he says, listen, I'm going to take you somewhere that you have never thought you were ever going to go. And I want you to have the courage to truly consider. Friends, it's time for the evangelical church to move away from affirmation bias and to start to dig into the scriptures to see what God really thinks. That's why I love Joseph. Joseph is an amazing guy. Question, how much courage does it take to consider the validity of someone else's views? How much courage does it take for us to believe what God says about our situation? The answer is, it takes a lot. Second part of this that strikes me is, so Joseph is wrestling all of this through. And then the angel comes to him. And what we see here is that Joseph then has the courage to commit. He has the courage to commit. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He had the courage to commit. The reason I say that Joseph had courage to commit is because his obedience led to 
what was for him forcing consequences, consequences that he knew would come, but also it led him to embrace the consequences that he did not know that were to come. Firstly, we know that Joseph's decision to commit to Mary meant that he would raise a child that was not his own. The Christmas story I love because it's the first step family. It places the narrative into into step family territory. If you look there, verse 16 says that Jesus was born of Mary. It doesn't say of Joseph, even though it's telling the story of Joseph. Verse 20 talks of what is conceived. Now, here's what's interesting. The phrase was born and was conceived are written in the Greek passive tense, which implies that Joseph had nothing to do with it and that the birth of Jesus was actually a special act of God. Matthew specifically says this in verse 18. And so even when he's telling the story from Joseph's perspective, Matthew makes it clear that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. But make no mistake, Joseph had the courage to commit. And in that commitment, he determined to raise a child that was not his own and suffered the consequences of that choice for the rest of his life. The consequences of that choice? Yes. When you read the scriptures, especially the first gospel, over and over again, there are subtle allegations of illegitimacy surrounding Jesus. Oh, isn't this Joseph's son? Nowhere in the infancy narratives is Jesus ever called Joseph's son. He's called Mary's son. See, when the news got out that Mary was pregnant, Joseph knew that in committing to Mary, in committing to raising Christ, he would suffer the consequences of verbal abuse for the rest of his life. Now, not only that, there was the consequence of Herod, right? Leading his family into exile, becoming quite literally, asylum seekers in a foreign land. Consequences over and over again. Joseph welcomed Christ, and in doing so, he connected his life to a scandalous story that only a few righteous people ever believed at that point in time. And here's what we know. The story that started scandalously ended scandalously with a cross. And what was a scandal back then is actually a scandal today, which is why the Apostle Paul talks about the message of Christ being a stumbling block, a scandal unto many. And yet, despite all of this, Joseph commits, and he has the courage to accept the consequences. And this is where I want to go. When you have the courage to truly consider something that is going to radically change your life, it always has consequences. And they're not always good. They're not always great. Think about this. Daniel was taken from home, placed in Babylon, where he rose through the ranks because God was on him. And at some point in time, he went along with the culture, right? He had his name changed. Some things he embraced, but then there came a point in time of embracing idol worship, and he said, I'm not going to do that. So what happened to him? Daniel, the consequence of that courage was he was thrown in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, exactly the same thing. They would not 
go as far as people wanted them to go. So what happened to them? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. Whenever you look at the scriptures, the people who demonstrate courage had consequences that they were willing to take. Sadly, a lot of people today think courage and having courage shouldn't have any consequences at all. So again, I'm not at home, so I can be more bold here, right? (laughs) So you've got the the left, who think that it is courageous to go and protest against racial injustice, even if that means violently destroying public property. And when they are caught for that, they think there should be no consequences for their courage, and they won't accept being fined or imprisoned. Wait a minute, if you're going to demonstrate courage, then you need to suffer the consequences. Or what about the right? Let's go left and right here to be balanced. It's okay for us to storm the Capitol building in January, and that was a courageous thing to do. But the minute there were actually consequences for that courage from the legal system, then, hey, wait a minute, we don't like that. Well, friends, if you don't want to take the consequences, then don't go saying that this is courage. Courage in the Scriptures always has consequences. And when there are legal overtones to it, as there were for Joseph, there were consequences. Courage always has consequences. In Michigan, during the COVID, uh, as COVID was going on, the governor came out and gave all of these restrictions, again, Blue State. And one of the things she said, though, is that if you are a church, there is no penalty if you gather as a church and if you take your mask off. Right? So we've got locations in different places. Down here, I think it's probably the, the, one of the easiest ones. But when you go to California, we've got a, a, a congregation in California. That was really difficult. They couldn't meet at all there. Clearly, I think the governor went too far. But in Michigan, the governor said, hey, well, we're not going to. There are basically no penalties for the church. But, you know, that didn't stop some churches in our town actually standing up and the pastors going up there saying, it is no time to protest. We are going to meet no matter what. People from loads of churches flock to these churches because these pastors showed courage. Guess what? It's not courage because there were no consequences. The the governor said, unlike in California, the governor said, there are no penalties if you actually meet. For, For some of us, we've got it into our head that the courage of following Jesus has no negative consequences at all. Friends, it does, which is why Jesus says what? Have the courage to pick up your cross daily and follow me. We work ministry in many parts of the world where it is illegal to be followers of Jesus. Allocation, for example, in Cambodia, strongly Buddhist. Indonesia, where the the church is actually right there, centered right there in the Islamic heartland, fundamentalist heartland. You are punished if you come forward and you accept Jesus. Joseph sets an example in this story. He actually says, you know what? I'm going to have the courage to commit to Jesus, to welcome him into my home, even though I know the consequences that this may have. Friends, it takes courage to follow Jesus. It takes courage. And what do we know? We know that when we demonstrate the courage to commit to Jesus, God comes in and he says, look, here's what I want you to have. I want you to take courage, accept my view of this situation, because I am with you. So let me begin to wrap this up. 
Joseph is a great example, I think, for us today because he shows the courage to truly consider something that is quite alien to his own worldview. Secondly, he shows courage because he commits to Jesus even though he knows the consequences. So where does that start for you and me? Practically speaking, where does that start? As I was thinking about this uh, a little while ago, I was frustrated with what I saw happening in the church world and everything going on. And uh, I was thinking, man, I'm putting so much energy into ministry right now, and it doesn't seem to be any fruit. What's what's the fruit of this? The last 18, 20 months have just been so hard. I was speaking to some of our pastors, for example, Weston in California. He started a church two years ago. By the time COVID hit in February of 2020, he was up to 500 people, about 300 people there to come to Christ. It's an amazing work of God. And then California came in, closed it all down. And as I was talking to Weston, Weston was like, Craig, I'm just grieving our story. Have you ever been there? Just grieving because... What was happening has suddenly been stopped, and you're like, God. And I looked at Wes, and I said, Wes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be strong and courageous because God is with you, and your story hasn't finished yet. And he said, but Craig, what do I do? And into my heart at that point in time, I just shared with him what God is telling me. I said, Wes, what I want you to do, what God is telling me to do in this season, is to find joy in simple acts of obedience. Find joy in simple acts of obedience. One day God woke me up, it was one night, God woke me up in the middle of the night, giving me a name of a person saying, I want you to call them. I don't get that often. So I woke up in the morning, I called them, said, hey, I just want to give you a call, see how you're doing. And they were like, yeah, doing great. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, doing great. And I said, well, that's strange because God woke me up in the middle of the night and just told me to pray for you and to give you a call. And they're like, oh, thank you. That's nice. I'm like, nice? I hate nice. Do you like nice? Nice is like the opposite of great. Nice? And he's like, seriously, Craig, there's nothing wrong. I put the phone down. And I'm like, God, what was that about? And it was as if God said to me, Craig, in this season, I want you to find joy in simple obedience, not in the fruit of obedience. I joined obedience, not in the, in, the, in the fruit of obedience. And, and so I said, Wes, this is what I think God wants you to do. I think God wants you to actually find joy in obedience, not in the fruit of obedience. One of the best things that we can do to follow Jesus in a season that is crazy, when we're, we're treading into things that we just don't know what is going on, is to simply prioritize obedience. Because when we do that, God works. I want to read a scripture for you. It's from the Old Testament book of Haggai. It's uh, chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, God comes to the people and he says, I want you to be strong and courageous. I'm with you, right? Chapter 2. But before that, it proceeds it with this story. Now, the context is the people have been in exile in Babylon. And uh, they're now coming back. And they're coming back. And they look at the temple destroyed. And they want to rebuild it. So Haggai just basically gets people together. He wants to rebuild the temple. And... uh, What we're going to read here from chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, is basically like a speech, but there's something that happens in here that I think God does when we have the courage just to be willing to obey no matter what's going on around us. Okay, So Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and then wrap up with a couple of thoughts. This is what uh, we read here. 
That Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, that's not the Joshua from the book, okay, it's a different guy, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Notice that, please, right? People feared the presence of the Lord. That's why chapter 2 is important. Feared the presence of the Lord. They knew that God was with them. They knew that God was with them. Then, this is where it gets fun. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I'm with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all of the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The Lord stood up. Courage actually begins with a simple act of obedience. Joseph did what the angel said. See, when we are simply willing to be obedient, what God does is exactly what we read in this text. He starts to stir our spirits. He starts to stir our spirits on the inside. And as he starts to stir our spirits on the inside, we start to do exactly what God had said. They were troubled about whether they should rebuild this temple. But because they were willing to receive the message and obey it, the Spirit of God starts to stir their spirit, and all of a sudden, they start to act. They demonstrate the courage. Now, here's what's interesting. If you read on in that book, you'll actually get to the point where the temple's rebuilt and they're dedicating the temple. And at the end of the story, we read that the old people were crying and the young people were celebrating. And it's like, why were the old people crying? And the answer is because they remembered the glory of the temple that was. And the new temple faded in comparison to what the old one was. The old people were mourning what they'd lost. The young people were celebrating what they had. What does that tell us? Look, in a season of trouble, of trial, in a season where we're afraid of something, in a season where we may not be seeing as much fruit as we want, it's not the size or the scale of what we're doing that's important. It's actually the fact of our obedience. The old temple may well have been more significant than the first. But what mattered to God was knowing that his people were willing to do what was important to him right here, right now. Friends, that's the best way that we can prepare for God to come. What do you need in your life? Rather than thinking about something grand that you could do, you know where it starts with? It starts like with Joseph, just being courageous enough to consider and courageous enough to commit to what God has told you right now. It doesn't matter whether it's as grand as it was. God delights in simple obedience. So let me encourage you this season, have courage, true courage. The church in America really needs courage. It needs people to be courageous enough to seek his mind on the issues that we're facing. Not certain kind of new sites that we've actually got bookmarked 
And when some things, like with Joseph, are not in the Scriptures, remember, Joseph's situation was not in the Scriptures. Some of the challenges that we face are not in the Scriptures. When that is the case, we have to have the courage enough to do what Joseph did, lean into God, press into God, and when God speaks, our response, obey. Nothing more, nothing less. In this season, let's be courageous enough to put obedience to the leading in the Spirit above everything else. I'm going to invite the team to come up. They're going to sing a song that really talks.